How's it going? <laughs> Good. Sometimes I just want to sit down and just do nothing. <laughs> but not. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Um, all right. So we're in uh, picking up in Genesis chapter twelve again this morning. And as I was reading this chapter, um, first time I read through it, I thought we'd do the whole thing. Second time I read through it, I thought we'd do ten verses. And then uh, finally getting through, uh, read through it again and sitting down to study and realized we need to back up to the last part of chapter 11, I think, to understand the first part of chapter 12. And I was kind of hoping to get through a chapter and get through another chapter and kind of keep the pace moving. But um, I think maybe the Lord's got something else for us. I think at least in practical sense, if we're switching over to Abraham now, the life of uh, Abraham who becomes Abraham and the father of Israel... I think it's important that we take a minute and set the stage and find out what is being said here and what perhaps he's going through and what, uh, who he is, really. Uh, but to catch us up, we were, saw the earth being repopulated last week. We saw that guy Nimrod. Uh, we saw the Tower of Babel being built and uh, languages being created and people spreading out. Um, generations, we saw uh, this guy Peleg who, out of this whole generation, he gets an interesting sentence about the earth being divided in his days, and his, his name means divided. Uh, but all that was just a segue as to get from Noah to Abram, because God was focused on Abram. Noah was an important character, but as we saw, I believe it's, uh, was it one-third or two-thirds of Genesis is all about Abraham, because God had an important story to tell. He was uh, all about his people and all about bringing the Messiah to to come, and this was how it was going to happen through this man, Abram. But with that, with it being Christmas, I'm wearing my, I might look like a Christmas tree this morning, wearing green. Uh, but what is it that you can't wait for? What is it that in the past, perhaps, that you couldn't wait for? Uh, I remember being a kid growing up, and that was always Christmas, or your birthday, or school to get out, but around this time of year, it's like, how many weeks, how many days, how many hours, how many minutes, how many seconds? Back in the days before the internet, we had like a Lego catalog. It was like this, you know, thing they would send to the kids. So that kids would get their parents to buy more things. But it's, you know, circle like the whole catalog. Every page, just circle every page. You know, maybe you have an Amazon wish list and you've circled every page. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, there was lists or desires. We had an advent calendar every morning. Come down and have breakfast. It was in the uh, family room. And after breakfast or before going to school, open up one of the doors. And then the 25th day, it was something bigger. Uh, we had different ones over the years, but uh, I believe you gave one to Ash. That's, one, that's where we got ours, right? So the kids have been doing that, and they love that. Um, they're asking how many days. They, they keep asking, is it Christmas? I think because I'm referring to the season as Christmas, and they think every day is sort of Christmas. Like, no, 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 it's not today yet. <laughs> but when we look at Abraham, I think Abraham, Abram, sorry, he's not Abraham yet, he's Abram. Uh, if I say Abraham, just no, I mean Abram, or I should mean Abram. But I think he wanted more. As we'll see, and as you probably know, he was very wealthy. Uh, but he still lived in his father's house, in a way. I think, in a sense of Trump's children, or other famous people, and they have children, they live under the shadow of their family. Uh, they all, you know, perhaps they're famous because of their last name. Uh, perhaps they got their job because of their name. But I think that, uh, for his family at least, that's what they're known for. You know, I think some of his kids are you know, good in business and good in world affairs just because that's who they are, but their names certainly help them, I bet. And there's nothing wrong with that. This world tends to look at, you know, getting, having a family that's successful and being successful from a family that's successful as somehow, like, something wrong, and it's not. It's not. You know, it's wrong if it's abused, but, man, I hope that I can put my kids in a better place, at least spiritually, than I was, that they might have a better standing around. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, if I want to give them I bet, you know, I had a great, I don't think, I'm never going to make as much money as my dad did, and I'll never be able to get all the toys that they did, but God has. They have more toys in the first three years of life than I can in my entire life. I'm like, I had Legos and Nintendo. I never had all this stuff. <laughs> but I think it's fantastic. But I think in the same way, and somehow, perhaps, I mean, maybe if you read this, you'll get, you'll see it a little differently. Um, I'm not saying I know for sure, but I think in some way, Abram wanted more. His family was a family of idolaters, as we see in uh, Joshua 24, 2. It says, Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in all times, 
and they served other gods. Um, they lived in Babylon. Uh, as we looked at last week, there were lots of idols there. Obviously, there was a lot of ego there with Nebuchadnezzar and uh, the Tower of Babel. And there was this continued culture of ungodliness. You know, Saddam Hussein thought he was the next Nebuchadnezzar, that he was trying to revive that empire. You know, there's still that spiritual thing going on over there. But I believe Abram wanted more. You know, we know that God called him while he was still there in Babylon. Abram didn't leave, and then he heard from God. He heard from God right where he was, in the middle of an idolatrous family, in the middle of his wealth, in the middle of uh, the most powerful, one of the most powerful kingdoms at the time. And I don't know that it was maybe the sense of personal wealth or fame, because I think perhaps he saw that maybe having all that, he was still empty, as Solomon might say, you know, that you know, he can have all these things, but pursue wisdom. Wisdom is the principal thing, get wisdom. You know, his family had everything. They had wealth, they had power, they had prestige. They had the most spiritual plurality. You know, they worshipped all the gods. They knew everything. They had the coexist bumper sticker on their car, you know. They, they had it all. But it wasn't enough. And I think that Abram knew that, these, that those idols in his family, that uh, those idols that his family and his people worshipped, that they weren't gods at all, that they weren't idols. I think he saw the effects in their life. You're burying that in the backyard and the house still didn't sell. You know, I don't know. 1 Corinthians 8.4 says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. And Abram didn't have the scriptures. But Abram wasn't too far removed from Noah. And I think whether he knew about Noah or not, you know, obviously it was passed on and Moses found out, so obviously there's some sort of connection there. But I think he knew that there was one God. That when he looked around and saw the spirituality of the world and his family, he realized, this isn't it. This can't be it. It doesn't even make any sense. And I think if, if we're honest, and if people of the world are honest, they look around and try to look at something logically, it makes sense that there's a God. You know, uh, I was feeling a little nauseous yesterday. I think it was something I ate. But, you know, it might have been that uh, hot chocolate I got from Dunkin' Donuts. I don't know. <laughs> but... I was wondering, well, how does my body know to get nauseous and get sick? Like, how does it know to do that? And I was looking it up, and I still didn't get a, a straight answer. You know, somehow the stomach, and there's a chemicals, and the stomach sends signals, but there's this part at the bottom of your brain called the uh, post-aretum or something, and it's a little part of the top of your brain stem, right? It's part of your brain, and your brain is encapsulated with, within the blood-brain barrier where it doesn't allow chemicals and toxins in your brain. There's this membrane there that protects the brain, and this part of the brain is sticking on the outside of that so it can receive chemical signals and, and know it's in the blood and receive things from other parts of the nervous system. And basically it controls you throwing up or getting sick. It's the body saying, hey, we've realized there's something wrong here. Get it out of you. And I think, you know, how could that evolve? You know, who's the first guy to get the, brain blo the blood brain barrier? And how do they survive before? You know, like, it's, you look at how complicated this is. And even then, like, looking at all the different pounds and all the different types of cells and all these diagrams, I'm like, how can this possibly be? You know, like logically, it just can't happen. And I think that they're getting to that point. They just don't want to admit it. But I think Abram saw that. He just looked around and he realized, man, there's got to be one God. There's got to be one God. And I think and I believe, obviously, if he heard from God, he was probably seeking God. I mean, I'm sure God can speak to someone who's not speaking up. It's, you know, he gets Balaam on the donkey. The donkey speaks to Balaam to get his attention. So God has his ways. But I think at some point, perhaps, Abram sought God. And we're going to see that even though he did that, God still sought him. Uh, because God is the one who spoke to him. It doesn't say that Abraham found God. It says that the Lord said to Abraham. I remember seeking God in the emptiness of my life before coming to, to know him. Uh, you know, I grew up in the church. Uh, I went to a Christian school until eighth grade, so I knew the truth. But I was out drinking in my early 20s. I remember being in a bar. I think it was probably Hoboken in New York City. I don't remember. I remember sitting there. My friends are around me, and I'm looking the other way, and just kind of sitting there, drinking and going, there's got to be more than this. It was like God was touching me and showing me that this isn't it, that this is empty. Because there was more to life than this, and I'm thankful that God showed me that, because my friends didn't see it. My family at the time didn't see it. But somehow, through God's grace and mercy, I saw it. And it wasn't my own intellect. I was an idiot. I still am. But God is merciful. I think that in some way, Abram, probably better than me in that sense, 
saw that there was a God. And, and with that, let's, uh, let's go back to Genesis 11, verse 26. And uh, we'll read through 12, 5. But as we do that, Lord, we, we do ask God that you would open our eyes this morning to the things that we can't see naturally and of our own. You say that the, the flesh can't understand the things of God. So God, help us understand you. God, you're the only one who can give us that understanding. So uh, we're seeking you. We want to hear from you. And like Abram, we want to we want to be dedicated to you. And, and uh, we know that the world doesn't have everything we need, but you are everything we need. Thank you. Jesus. So Genesis 11, verse 26. And it says, Now Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Uh, you'll recognize some of those names uh, and see them more as we go. Verse 27. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran begot Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the, of the Chaldeans. Uh, that's Iraq and Iran and Babylon, that region. Then Abram and Nahor took wives, and the name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren, and she had no child. And Terad took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife. And they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country and from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all, uh, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people whom they had acquired in Haran. And they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. You know, we read through uh, verse 5 today, but we're going to cover 2 and on next week. But I think it was important that we hear uh, that whole chunk. Uh, but it's interesting because there's a past tense here that I don't know, I, ne- I never picked up on before. And that's why we step back, because if we just started in, in chapter 12, verse 1, I think we might miss the past tense sense of, now the Lord had said to Abram. If we don't read these last few verses and get the story of what happened, um, we'd, miss that, we'd miss an important part of the story in the beginning here, because it said that the Lord had said to Abram, that these things happened, but now as these things were happened and they, they were in Haran, uh, Moses brings up that the Lord had said to Abram. You know, how long was it from when God had said that to when he actually went? I don't know. But Abram, as we'll see, as we know, was no spring chicken when he had Isaac, so he was, <laughs> he was not a young guy here either. I mean, as we look later at uh, Sarai and they go down to Egypt, um, Sarai was very beautiful, although she was, you know, technically I think like in her 60s, but given their ages, she was probably more in her 30s, but they weren't young. They'd been around the block for a while. Um, but did he hear that call when he was a kid? You know, was he like Samuel and heard the call of God? Maybe he didn't listen to it. I don't know. I don't want to peg anything on Abram. But I wonder when he heard it. Did he hear it as a young man before he was married? And God said, Abram, leave your house. Leave your family. You know, like when Jesus, when he was 12 years old, he was found in the temple. His parents thought he was hanging out with his family. And then they were halfway home and they realized, Jesus ain't here. So they panicked. I mean, if I was at a rest stop and then left, and I didn't know where my kids were, two hours later, two days later, if I didn't know where my kids were, two days, man, his parents were probably like, ah, peace and quiet. You know, I don't know. (laughs) Probably not with Jesus. He was probably like, ah, peace and quiet. But uh, they found him in the temple, and he said, what? I think about my father's business. Did you know that? I'm 12 years old. (laughs) This is where I'm supposed to be. Jesus heard the call of God in his life. But did he hear the call as a young, unmarried man? And God said, Abram, get out of your father's house. And he's like, my father's about to hook me up with a bride. I can't go yet. When did this unsettling in his life start? And that's a pun. When does this unsettling in his life start? You know, I have a feeling that it was probably percolating for a little while. If we see his actions later and how he's actually a man of growing faith as opposed to a father of faith right away, 
He didn't become a father of faith overnight. He had to go from a little boy of faith to a man of faith. But I think Abraham was still dependent on a lot. And that's another point. So he was dependent on a lot, but there was also a lot in his life. And he was unsettled in his heart, but I think he also had to be unsettled in his life. And I believe when we feel unsettled in life as believers, and sometimes too as unbelievers, it's really because something needs to change. Maybe we feel unsettled because we want something to change. It's not changing. We need to come to God and find the peace of God. But I think when we seek God and we pray about things and we still feel unsettled, I think that's God unsettling us. That's God saying, all right, we need to get up from where we are and we need to keep moving. Um, you know, my, I've got a little more lax this last vacation, but kind of like, come on, we've got five minutes to get in the bathroom, come back out, let's get in the car, let's go, we've got to make our good time. And I was like, I realize that's never going to happen with our kids. You know, it barely happens, as you see this morning with myself. Um, so I don't think that that's God's spirit, but it's God's spirit to move us and unsettle us from time to time. Um, I think a lot of times that means to move. That doesn't necessarily mean pack up your things and go. Maybe it does. At some point it will. But I think maybe it might mean to move to our knees and pray. If you're unsettled at night, get up and pray. Or get up and, you know, go take an Advil. I don't know. But it also might mean to move away from whatever's between us and God. If you're unsettled, and you're trying to spend time with God, and you just get more unsettled and more unsettled, something's got to change. Perhaps you're in the wrong place. Maybe that's spiritually. Maybe that's physically. Maybe there's something in your life that needs to go that hasn't gone, that you haven't unsettled, you haven't packed up, you haven't thrown out. Because God wants there to be nothing between us and him. And either the thing between us has to move, or we have to move so that there's nothing between us and God in a closer relationship with him. And if the things, the people, and places in our lives aren't drawing us near to God, they've got to go, or we've got to go. Now, I don't mean this is anytime some trial comes, you know, your friend's being mean to you, your spouse is not getting along with you, you've got to go. <laughs> no, there's, there's a trial there, you know, that uh, produces perseverance and faith and hope and, and really strengthens us and deepens us. What I'm saying is, sometimes we need to consider that maybe this thing shouldn't be in my life anymore. I mean, there's times when I've had to cut off relationships and times when I've had to restore relationships, but it was always after prayer. It was always because I was unsettled and, God, what, is, what am I supposed to do with this relationship? Again, we're not supposed to run away because when we run away from a trial, we have to go through that trial again. God will bring us right back through there. Forever, 40 years we want to wander, as Abraham will see one day. Um, but we have to flee sin. We have to forsake the past, our flesh, our ways of looking at things, our ways of doing things. Because the Bible says we're not to associate with the unfruitful works and unfruitful things of the world. It's not to be part of your life, Christian. Your life is supposed to be markedly different. Yes, we're supposed to be in the world and not of it, but we're not supposed to be of it. And Abraham was at a place where God told him, you can't be here anymore. I've got something better than you, better for you than this. And you can't, you, can't, you can't have the relationship you want with me staying here anymore. This word says, when God says, now the Lord had said to Abram, he said, get out of. That means to go, to walk, to come, to depart, to proceed, to move, to go away. But I think also, it, I know it also means to die to die, but also metaphorically to die, to die to a way of life, um, a manner of life. It could also mean to lead or to cause to walk. And it reminds me of when Jesus uh, said to, found Simon Peter and his brother Andrew fishing, he said to them in Matthew 4, 19 and 20, he said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. If they didn't immediately leave, they wouldn't have been able to find him. Jesus didn't have an ankle bracelet. He didn't have a Twitter you know, he, could, he couldn't say, I'm at this place today, come, you know, have a subscriber meetup. They had to follow him right then. They had to say, fishing or Jesus? Jesus or fishing? And they said, sorry, Dad, we're going with Jesus. Because they knew that there was more. As good as fishermen they were, and as they had a family business they could be a part of, they knew there was more to life, and they wanted it. And God was leading Abram out and away from everything that he knew 
and loved. Everything. He says, out of your country. That's your land, your country, your people, your ground, your territory. You know, it's out of your stomping grounds, Abram. Out of the place you grew up. You know every shortcut in these hills. You know every shop. You know every person. They know you. It's time to get out. Have you ever been out of the country? <laughs> Have you had that culture shock? I remember when I was first out of the country, uh, I went to Ireland. And it was partly jet lag. But I was in England on a layover. And even that was kind of weird, seeing the cars on the wrong side of the road driving. But then when I got to Ireland, it was total culture shock. People driving the right-hand side. A guy gave me a ride, and he was, like, super nice. And I wasn't like America, where I say no way. It was like, oh, this guy's... Look at the Irish, I'll get in the car, you know. And I was on the wrong side of the car, we're on the wrong side of the road, and uh, just culture shock there. Um, I remember being out and wanting to tip the person at the bar, and my friend told me, no, 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 they don't, that's an insult here. I'm like, oh, okay, cool, I'll keep it. <laughs> it's not an insult to me. But again, the culture shock, you know, here we say if you don't tip, you're the one who's doing the wrong. Or Bahamas, they had a snack shack, this great, you know, food that they would have. Uh, but there was out, no one out during the early afternoon. You know, we go around and try and invite people to a thing, and everyone's like, it's hot outside. We're not going outside. <laughs> We're taking a siesta. But also the poverty. And seeing the poverty. I remember coming back to the supermarket after my first trip to the, uh, the Bahamas. I don't mean like the tourist area, like the other part of the island, uh, the islands. Uh, and um, I remember going and being in the salad dressing aisle of ShopRite in Middletown, and just like standing there and like going like this and it was like salad dressing, you know? And coming from some of the sites I'd seen going, oh my word. Like just in shock, you know, like realizing how much we truly have and how much blessing we have. And again, nothing is wrong with having a thousand types of salad dressing, but what do we do with it? But it's just, uh, have you ever traveled to other parts of the US? You know, there's many cultures even in the size of our country, the South, the West, Northeast. But it's a scary proposition to leave everything you know and love. You know, like first going to school, you're leaving your home, leaving your house. First time at a job, first time going anywhere, it's always a little, always a little nerve-wracking. But God didn't even tell Abram the destination. He just said, leave. Just said, get out. You know, we have GPS. Abraham didn't. You know, now we have, I remember my brother would write up the directions, turn my turn to get to his house in the 90s of, my mom and I could get there. We didn't have GPS, so if we made a wrong turn, you know, that was, we got so lost one time. Um, but Abram didn't have that. Abram just knew to, to go. I don't know that God even said, pack anything. He just said, go. And, you know, we have Google Maps. You know, I remember before I went to Montana, I previewed it. I went there. I looked at the street. I looked at where it was to get an idea. Abram didn't have that option. He didn't even know where to, even if he had it, he wouldn't know where to look. Matthew 8, 19, 20 says, a certain scribe came to him and said, uh, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This guy wanted to follow Jesus, and Jesus is telling him, Buddy, um, if you truly follow me, you might not have a home. You might not even have a sleeping bag. You ain't even going to have a pillow. You know, when Jacob was fleeing, he put his head on a rock, right? The true cost of following Jesus might mean you don't have a home, don't have a place to go to, don't have a place to put your feet up and relax. You know, I haven't owned a home yet. Maybe I was in financial place, or maybe I wasn't, but it's not something I pursued because God wasn't leading me to do it. And now that I have kids, I'm like, oh, I kind of wish I had pursued it in like a fleshly way, but I'm glad I didn't because I'm free to move about. You know, that, with that Southwest, bing, you're free to move about the cabin. You know, homeownership is great, and I'd love to own my home one day if that's what God has for me. But if not, I'm free to move about. As soon as my rental contract is up, I'm free to go. Not having a homeland anymore, not having a place to go back to. You know, you go somewhere and you come back, and like, you ever go visit your hometown 10, 15, you know, 20 years later, you go, this ain't the same place. Yeah, my friends don't live here either anyway, but it's like, this, it's different. What's First Peter 2.11 says that we are sojourners and pilgrims. Sojourners and pilgrims have a destination. They've got a final destination, a coordinate on their GPS. Like the pilgrims came here. They wanted to get to the new world. They were fleeing persecution and they came here. And us, we're going to heaven. That's our destination. But between here and there, don't settle down too long. You know, if I buy a house, great, I'm satisfied. But if God tells me so, one day I hope I do. 
if not, you know, this is not my home. I know, like, Ash and I, like, we're, like, ready to be done with moving. We move so many times. Like, if we move one more time, and then, you know, if that's a house, or we move and rent, and then maybe buy a house, if that's what God has, we'll be fine. We're ready to settle down for a little while. We're ready to put down some roots. But if God doesn't have that for us, then okay, we'll, we'll suck it up, and we'll keep going. Because I know that, what, Jesus is preparing a house for all of us, a mansion for us, and that's our final home. There's always one more move, guys, and that's to heaven. We have the scripture to rely on. We have the whole Bible to look at, to read, to be taught, to listen, to meditate on. Abraham just had the voice, the promise, the hope. He said, Abram, get out of your country, from your family, and so on. But how much does it take for God to say or do in our lives to get us to move? How much should it really take? When I tell my kids, we're going to watch a movie. <laughs> They're, you know, on the couch. Let's go. I'll turn it on, Dad. I'll get it. Which one are we getting? Guys, can you clean up the Legos? <laughs> you know, sometimes they're quick about it. Sometimes they're not. And that's the same thing with me, too. You know, Jacob's like looking for something to clean up, and he'll walk right past. I'm like, right there, buddy. Just pick up anything. <laughs> anything. <laughs> you know, and we've all done that. We all do that because we don't want to. So we'll dilly-dally. That's my mom's favorite word with me growing up. Stop dilly-dallying. That's my life, Mr. Dilly Dally. But how much should it really take with God? How much of the cross is important to us? If the cross and what Jesus did there for us is important, we probably shouldn't dilly dally. I don't think you can dilly dally. I don't know, I can't dilly dally when I consider the cross. When I try and obscure the cross from my spiritual eyes, then I can dilly dally. But when I look at the cross, and I, not the cross as an idol, but as Jesus and the sacrifice there, and how much he loves me, he said, it's finished, I love you, it's over. And I consider the sin of my life and of my past, and how God says, I don't see it, it's gone. As far as the east is from the west, the things I know that I would condemn myself for, that God says, no, I don't see it, you're forgiven, you're clean. How can I sit around then? How can I get up from a time from the Lord like that and delay? 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 22 says, Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. That Man, when God touches those things, when God shows those things in our life, don't delay. If you know me, you procrastinate. I'm a procrastinator. Oh, tomorrow I'll do this. Tomorrow I'll do that. And Five years later, I haven't done it yet. <laughs> you know, I bought running shoes five, uh, four years ago. I ran once at your house. <laughs> I took them down from the closet two months ago. Still haven't gone on my feet yet. <laughs> but they're out, so at least they're out. In my mind, at least they're out. They're not away. So, But that's not helped me at all. That's a small thing. Spiritually, I'd rather, you know, God says it's better to be spiritually fit than it's physically fit. You know, not that we shouldn't be. But what's it going to take for us to take God at his word? How many times do you have to tell us? You know, sometimes I say to my kids, how many times do I have to tell you? Apparently, this many times. <laughs> you know? like, And I don't want it to be that way with them. And I tell them, I don't want to tell you this over and over. I don't want to have to yell at you or put you in time out or anything. I'd rather you just be obedient right away because we could be having fun playing Nintendo, watching a movie, playing outside. But we can't because you didn't listen. I think that's the same heart of God towards us. Man, God wants to do so much with us. And we dilly-dally. And God goes, well, it's time for bed now. We can play tomorrow. And God's promise doesn't go away, as we'll see with Abram. God's faithfulness doesn't change. God doesn't, isn't mad at Abram if he dilly-dallied at all. He's a little like, come on, Abram, like, there's going to be consequences in your life. But, man, I think the only thing that, the reason why we're missing out on life is because we're the ones choosing to miss out. But he says, from your family, from your kindred, from your birth, from your offspring, from your relatives. Not that there's anything wrong with family. I love my family. I think getting married and, and becoming part of your family as well um, has shown me a more meaning to family. My family. Our families are very different on either side. I think there's true love on both sides, but the behavior is different. You know, my family will hang out for a little while and we're good for a couple months. You know, like, I know they love me. I hope they know I love them. But, you know, we hang out, and that's kind of it. And part of that's 
just because of stuff that happened in our past. And, but things have been healed, but this is, is, is where it's at. And so coming to a, a family, uh, my wife's family, and seeing how the family hangs out more often, it was always about family things. I think it was a, it was a blessing, something I needed to see. Um, I know it is. And not if there's anything wrong with that, in either side of that. But I know that Abram's family wasn't supportive. To them, Abram was probably a little weird. He didn't have all the idols. He didn't have all the things. He just had one God. His God wasn't just another God to them. You know, maybe they worshipped, maybe they said, okay, Abram, we'll go to church with you on Sunday. We'll worship your God too. And they go back to their things. Maybe it was just another cultural thing to him. Yeah, we'll go on. We go to church Christmas and Easter. Abram, don't you know that? I have a Bible. Jesus is, a, his picture's in my living room. I know Jesus. You don't have to be so crazy about him, Abram. But family was important to Abram. You know, they had a big family. This is a familiar culture. I mean, family only now is becoming a thing in culture where family is not important. But family is the most important part of culture. And they had a tight family. They knew about tent living. You know, perhaps they moved about. Maybe moving was their thing. I don't know if they were uh, nomads or anything, but perhaps. Abram knew about tents. But they never went out of their own country. They never left their neighborhood, so to speak. They never left their region. And again, family is good. I'm not talking, saying that family is bad in any way. But who is your family? And we kind of talked about this a couple weeks ago before Thanksgiving. Who is your family? What priority do they take? What priority are they? They should be a priority, but I don't think they should be the priority. Matthew 12, 47 through 50, and I think we've read the verse and you know them, but it's good to see. It says, Then one said to him, Look, your mother and brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But Jesus answered and said to the one who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand towards his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus said, Yeah, I love them. They're my physical family. But anyone out here who's doing the will of God is just as important to me in a sense as they are. They are my family as well. And again, you know, uh, having kids and being a Christian, there's always this like, this balance, as with any part of life, balance with your wife, balance with your kids, balance with your job. And, uh, you know, I've gotten a lot of good advice from uh, older men in the Lord who have kids who have done ministry for years. said, man, don't miss out on the early years with your kids. You know, make sure that you don't, because you'll never get it back. You know, you can always get the 4 a.m. phone calls. There will always be more sheep to minister to, so to speak. But you'll, you'll, you'll never get that time back with your kids. So I've tried to make a, a, a concerted effort to keep my family, keep my kids' first priority in a sense, you know, because, again, the Bible says that um, if a man can't rule his own house, how can he take care of the household of God? And there's so many lessons uh, from being a father and a husband uh, and just having a home to uh, being related to the church that I, you know, I couldn't have learned otherwise. But sincerely, I don't want to miss that. But if there comes a time when I have to go out and do ministry and miss something, then I might have to do that. But I hope that, in the same sense, that they can just come with me. You know, Mia always wants to come with me to work. I'm like, oh, oh maybe one day I'm in ministry full-time and, you know, I don't have to do another job. If I do have to work another job the rest of my life, fine. But I hope that she can come with me all the time. I hope that she can be a part of those things um, so that there's not a separation. So that, you know, just like in the old days, uh, a carpenter would bring his son and daughter to work. I could bring my sons and daughters to work. But family is important to Abraham, you know. And in Matthew 10, it's uh, 34, 39, says, do not think, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake uh, will uh, find it. Excuse me. <laughs> but God was telling Abraham, if you want real life, you're going to have to lose it. Not forsake your family, but love me more in your family. And if I tell you one thing and your family tells you another, obey me, Abram. If I tell my kids one day, don't do something, and God's telling them to do it, they better do it. No matter how angry I get. But after they're 18. <laughs> No, you know what I mean. But Abram, you have to lose your life if you want it, if you really want to gain it. And that's the same thing for us. If we really want to gain the life God has for us, 
We have to lose the life we have for us. And he says, from your father's house, uh, the father, head of household, ancestor, originator of professional art, you know, the father of modernism or uh, a protector, a ruler, a chief. But it's interesting that Abram's name himself means exalted father. I think his daddy named him that because he's like, oh boy, I've got a son, Abram. Well, you know, I'm so happy. I'm an exalted father because I've got a boy, you know, especially in that culture. Uh, he named him this on purpose. But I think also because his dad was so wealthy and so prominent that, hey, I'm an exalted father. You know, you've got an exalted father. And you and I have an exalted father. Our father is wealthy. Our father is wise. Our father is known throughout the whole universe. He's not liked throughout the whole universe, but he's known throughout the whole universe. But again, like we talked about, he had his father's shadow. And not that his father's shadow is bad in a worldly sense or even in a regular sense, but if Abram wanted all of God's blessing in his life, he had to come out of the shadow of his father. But also his house, his father's provision, his father's sphere of influence. Abram had to know that whatever door he walked into was not being opened because his father knew the guy. There was no nepotism going on. It was because God was doing it. And I believe a father's influence is very great on, their, on his children. You can't stop that, whether it's good or bad. Whether the father is there or not, the father has influence on his children. And it's an equal influence whether they're there or not, just by who they are. The father's there and they influence them for good, good. If the father's not there, it influences them for bad. It's one way or the other. But for Abraham to receive the blessings from his heavenly father, he had to deny the blessings of his earthly father. He had to walk away from his dad. He had to walk away, in a sense, some way from his inheritance. And I think that this would be a lesson learned that we're going to see later when, uh, when it gives something Abraham to stand on. When Lot is captured uh, by all the kings and he goes, the warlords and he goes out and gets some guys and he goes and rescues Lot and comes back and the king of Sodom comes out and says, thank you, Abram, that was fantastic. You know, uh, let me bless you with all this wealth. And Abram goes, just hook my guys up with what they need, but I don't need anything from you because I don't want, God's got to be the one who gets the credit. If I take something from you, well, then I owe you something. And then it can be said that the king of Sodom hooked it up and that not God hooked it up. And I think Abram learned that lesson uh, he was about to learn that lesson here when he leaves. And I don't think he would have learned that lesson otherwise. But God's provision in our lives is not, and I'm sorry, won't be realized unless we let him be that provision. I think too often we take the well-meaning provision of others in our lives, whether it's our own father, whether it's our own family, or friends, or the church even perhaps, instead of waiting for the provision of God in our lives, which is always greater. I can give you 50 bucks if you need 50 bucks, I think. I don't know, I'm checking big now. But sincerely, maybe God's got 100 for you. Maybe you just waited on him. He would have hooked you up with something for free. You know, I was looking at getting a car a couple years ago, and God hooked it up. I got one for free. He used my father, but I didn't have a loan now. You know, maybe, maybe I should have gotten a loan. I don't know. It's something I still struggle with. But in some sense, at least in that sense, I haven't had a car payment. That's been fantastic. And the only way for God to make Abram great was for allow uh, Abram to let God be the greatest in his life. If, if God was going to be magnified in Abram's life, it would make Abram great. But it wasn't going to be the other way around. Abram could be great like his earthly father. He could have taken his earthly father's throne. He died soon, as we see. But it wouldn't happen spiritually. Abram wouldn't get everything he needs spiritually if he stuck around. You know, I remember uh, paying rent first to my uh, mom and stepdad after, uh, before I got saved and after I got saved. I remember before I got saved, I was like, why am I paying rent? I'm like, oh, I'm your son. I should be in your house. Then I got saved and I'm like, oh my gosh, how much can I give you? Is this sincere? This is all you're charging me? Like, and then I remember moving out and living with some friends and paying rent to a friend. And then a friend had a condo and I was the guy who was like, the I was the guy who paid the most rent in the condo, so I had the most, you know, authority and responsibility when it came to it. And then I moved out, and I was on my own. And then I was living with another friend, and I got married. And then we were living in a place that uh, was attached to someone else's home. And while it was great, it was like I, the whole time I was aware that I was under some other man's house and covering, and I wanted to get out from it. It was a blessing, and it was great to be there. But at a point, it was like, okay, I'm an adult. I need, you know, part of it was me just needing to be able to stretch my legs and feel comfortable. 
but also because it's like, I didn't want to be dependent on anyone. I, I'm an adult. I've got a family. I've got a God. I don't need to be dependent on anyone. You know, and then renting from strangers and other things, you know, like, I'm glad we have, God's blessed us with great landlords. Um, but at the same time, it's like, I'm there. I know that this isn't my house. And we even tell the kids that, you know, that I take care of it. And I treat, it feels like home. But at the end of the day, I know that, you know, it's not my house and I can't really go change and everything or fix everything. Sometimes that's a blessing. Hey, I don't have to fix that. Other times, you know, it's kind of like, oh, you know, I kind of wish I could do this. But, you know, at, at some point I'd love to own my own home. But then I think, no, oh, then I have to pay for it. You know, then I have to care for it. So there's, there's things there. But what I'm trying to say is that in order for Abraham to grow up, he had to get out. You know, kids live in their parents' house on health care until they're 28 years old. I'm like, man, I wish I could get a free ride like that. My mom would give me a free <laughs> You know, never kicked out when, they're, when they've done wrong. You know, I kind of wish I was kicked out a couple times when I was younger. Or never being forced to grow up. I remember changing a tire at 12 in the middle of the mountains in West Virginia or something. Uh, because my dad wasn't there. You know, my mom and her friend were, my mom was crying. I'm like, oh boy, find the manual, grab a piece of clothing, you know, to get the wrench. And I, I'm like, mom, tire change, let's go. You know, she's like, how'd you do that? I'm like, I read the manual. Can we go, please? You know, like, I, I was forced to grow up in a way. In that sense, um, you know, at times, you know, uh, you want money, get a job. When I was 14, I started working. I worked at McDonald's for two weeks. And then I said, I can't do this anymore. It's nuts. <laughs> they put me on a drive through the first day in Route 17, New Jersey. You don't do that. I didn't, I, I'm like, I don't even know where the buttons are. What button do I press? You know, like, why do you put me on a drive through at lunchtime? Like, did you want me to quit? But I think the reason why millennials are the most entitled and the most self-centered generation is because their parents spoiled them. You know, I've been spoiled to some degree. You know, I'll first admit that. I spoil my kids to some degree. But like I said, I also got a job at 14. You know, I also worked. I went to school and I worked. You know, if my mom would buy me things and take care of me in certain ways, but if I wanted money to go driving or pay car insurance or go out and do what I want to do, other things, I had to work. And I know that I've grown up a lot since getting married and having kids. There's still plenty more, and it's obvious, there's still plenty more growing up to do in my life. But I never would have learned the things I've learned. I never would have. Responsibility has a different tone now that I have a wife and kids to, to care for. And I'm glad I have that. But it's like, I'm just not just going to up and quit my job in two weeks, you know, and go move somewhere. Because I feel like God's leaving me. I want to be a little more uh, sure that it's the Lord, a little more cautious about it. Because other people are dependent on me. And that's good. But that growth never would have come if I was never given or never forced we're never uh, taken on that responsibility. And that's why I teach our kids, we teach our kids to clean up, to save their money. And little kid ways, you know, they have piggy banks and, you know, we still help them clean up and stuff. They don't do everything. Or Mia brushes her teeth and I'll go and brush them again or she'll get herself dressed. And, um, but again, because we want them, we want it to be natural to them. We don't want it to be culture shock when they're 18. How do I do laundry? I forget. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Ashley does a lot of stuff for me, so I'm like helpless. Um, but man, how much I had to grow up after getting saved and how unprepared for real life was, was I when real life hit me in the face. You know, there's a saying, no pain, no gain. It takes money to make money. No, it takes a job to make money. It takes a desire to go out and work hard, at least in our culture, to be able to do that. You know, you look at a socialist culture like Venezuela, they work hard all month. They get, what, two bucks now? Because the government won't get into that. But even with all that, even if you, you know, work hard your whole life, you'll never truly be great if God's not great in your life. You know, you can be the Elon Musk, you can be the Bill Gates, and they do all these great things, but in a day, they're going to die just like you and me and go to the same place you and I and stand before God, and God's going to go, so? Oh, that's it? You think you're rich? Think you did a lot? Well, it doesn't earn you a place here. But God says... I was going to say to Moses, uh, God says to Abram, to a land that I will show you. It's the same word as before, uh, a land. You know, it's going to give him a new homeland, a new place to live, a bigger place. You know, we see it's the bounds of all of Israel, you know, bigger than Israel is today. But it's also to see, to look at, to perceive, to consider, to observe. That God wanted uh, Abram to see all these things. You know, Moses was shown the land, even though he couldn't go into it. Joshua and Caleb spied it out. Paul and John were showed heaven. Paul couldn't speak of it. Kind of like Moses, right? He couldn't go there. 
But John freely did. He saw the promised land, and he told us all about it in Revelation. God said, tell them. Tell them. I want them to know and see that this is real, that there is a place. And it's not just, I don't know what's going to happen when we get there. You know, uh, we just buy out a land. New York City, years ago. Uh, maybe I should have gone to the city. I don't know, but at the time I was praying about it, and I got Psalm 48, 12 to 14 in my devotion. It said, walk about Zion and go all around her. Counter towers, mark well her bulwarks. Consider her palaces that you may tell it to the generation following. For this is God, our God, forever and ever, and he will be our guide even death. And so, me being crazy and single, one morning I got up some Saturday and went down to New York City, took the train down, uh, the PAT train had recently started working towards the World Trade Center again. Um, it was before, like, the Freedom Town and everything. And I took the path down there, and I walked all the way from there all the way up to 33rd Street. I don't remember if I went to Times Square. I don't remember if I did the last time blocks or whatever. But I walked all the way up, and I remember going, this is farther than I thought it was. I remember walking and looking, and looking at all the buildings at some point. I had headphones on, and I remember God speaking to my heart about things. And God showed me, do you think these are big? I can tear these down in a minute. The things that I build are forever. You know, things of that nature. I don't remember exactly what was said, but God spoke to my heart about a lot of things. You know, we went to Maryland. We took a trip to go spy it out. Before we came back up here, we did a sneaky vacation out to North Jersey. Probably because we had to get away, because it is what it is. But probably because we had to see, you know, let's go and see if this is just us or if God might show us something. But even in the physical, I think it makes sense. You know, if you, if you want to buy a house, you want to rent a house, you want to move somewhere, you go there. You go look at it. You go walk around. You get a home inspector. You look in closely. You don't just take the realtor's uh, photographs. You know, the photograph, oh, what a pretty photo. You turn around, there's no wall behind you. It's like, you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, you don't want to live there. You want to go get a car. You go what? You go look at the car. You do research. You go take it for a test drive. You want to make sure it is what you think it is and what you want it to be. You know, if you buy something sight unseen, you're going to have your work cut out for you. Maybe you do. You know, there's guys who buy cars sight unseen and then they fix it up. And, you know, I think that'd be cool. But generally, if you need a car, you don't want to buy it sight unseen because you're still going to be in need probably. But this is why people date in the world. But dating screws you up because you can't get that close to somebody and not get attached. And the problem is you get attached before you know if you should be attached or not. That's why God says don't date. You know, look, watch, observe. That's why we should see, is this the kind of person I want to be close with? Is this the kind of person that, you know, God is going to bring together in my life? And then when he does, then you can. But man, you get attached before that, it's nothing but misery. It's nothing but pain and heartache and, and uh, consequence. That's the same for ministry. You know, 1 Timothy 5.22, do not lay hands on anyone hastily, Paul says to Timothy, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. Paul says, hey, some guy comes along, he looks like the greatest thing since sliced bread. Wait, wait and see. Wait and see what's in his life before you say, okay, you can be a part of this ministry. But make sure that they are who they say they are, who they appear to be, whether it's a business deal, a personal deal, or whatever it is in life. Make sure. You know, Proverbs 27, 2 says, Let another man praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. You know, don't be the one boasting. You know, it says, man who boasts is like a cloud without rain. You know? Oh, look, the cloud's coming. It's going to rain. Our cro- Where'd it go? <laughs> you know, and how many people come to our lives like, I'm great, I'm going to do this for you, brother. And, oh, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do this. And never comes to be. You know, don't trust that. Let someone else, and don't let us be that person either. You know, there's this interesting YouTube video about why incompetent people think they're amazing. It's got some psychology mixed in, either here or there. But it talks about underqualified or skilled people tend to think they're overqualified because they haven't had a certain experience or knowledge or anything. But, you know, if you guys ever watch the show Friends, that the girl Phoebe plays the guitar and she sings, and it's always really kind of bad. But she thinks she's like the greatest thing since sliced bread. Or, you know, it's like, and how much is that us sometimes? We're like, we're like, let me sing for you. And everyone's kind of like, uh. you know, like, wasn't that great? You know, you sing in the shower, you sing in the car, and then the music skips and you hear how, how you really sound. Oh, boy. Roll them windows up. That's for me. <laughs> but on the, same, on the other end of the scale, overqualified people tend to think that they're underqualified and they don't realize how special a gift they really do have. You know, you don't realize. You know, a lot of times I, I realize that Man, not everyone knows the gospel like we do. Not everyone grew up with it. And I forget that. I walk around just assuming everyone does. Um, it should be that way. But we need to have a realistic view of ourselves, and that only comes at the cross. But with that realistic view, it really gives God the opportunity to work. 
Because if we don't have a realistic view of ourselves and realize that we can't do anything, how is God going to do anything? God's going to be like, all right, do it if you want. Let's see how that turns out. But it gives God the opportunity to show the world how great he is and to make you and I into something great. Something greater that we can ask or seek or imagine. But do you know that God wants to do something great through you? Do you know that? God wants to do something great through you. I'll say it again. God wants to do a lot of great things through you. Even greater things than you can ask or seek or imagine. He does. If you think not, if you're doubting that, if you're struggling with that, that's the enemy. That's you. That's pride. God, God can do anything he wants. And if you think he can't do something great through you, well, then you've got a small view of God. And you think you've got a better settled than God. And I do that too. And there's all sorts of reasons why I think that maybe you're struggling with sin or other things that we haven't dealt with. You know, it's not to condemn you. I hope it frees you. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. You know, what's the deepest desire you have? Is it the Lord? Okay, well, if you've figured that one out, what's the second deepest desire? It's deep down, I bet. You don't think it'll ever happen or ever be true? Maybe they won't. Maybe it won't come to be the way you think it comes to be. Like maybe Abraham thought it would come to be in his life, but God had something different and greater outside of his hometown for him. But as a believer, if they're pure, if those secondary desires after the Lord are pure, they're probably from the Lord. Desiring kids, you want this in life, you want to do this in life, you want to have that. Maybe it won't look like what you want it to look like. Maybe it won't look like what you expect it to look like, but that doesn't mean that desire is wrong. It just means you don't know what God wants to do with that desire. And if you honestly consider and look at the desire and go, is this desire from the Lord? Or would I have really had this if I didn't know the Lord? God wants to, to that desire is there on purpose. It's a seed. It's something that God wants to grow up and, fathom, and grow out. Again, we need to take these things in prayer and consider them and let the word divide our heart because the word will figure out and cut into us and show us what's wrong and right. So I'm not saying, you know, you desire to be a multimillionaire and drive Ferrari. That's of God. You know, maybe it is. Maybe God will do that. But I think God's got something greater than that for you. You know, we see that rich people, they, they, their glory fades like the grass, right? But it's not to be a pew warmer. It's not to be second rate. You have a great purpose. God died for you. God died for you. Tell me that you don't have purpose after that. I have purpose. I have more purpose. God's got more purpose for me. I don't, you know, I don't know the, the extent of it, but it's not up to us to know the extent of it. Just like it wasn't up to Abram to know where he was going. He just knew that God was calling him to go. So that's all he had to do was get up and go, and God would do the rest, right? I heard it said this week, it's not a Christian quote, but it says, to be number one, you have to be odd. And I like it because it's a pun. Because an odd number, number one is an odd number. And to be number one, you've got to stick out. You've got to stand out. You don't get to be Elon Musk by standing on the sidelines. You don't get to be Bill Gates by not going out and doing your thing. You don't get to be Steve Jobs or all these other people who are famous in the world. If they just sat back and did what everyone else was doing, we would never know them. I'm not saying you need to be them or that necessarily they're the, the best idol, so to speak, to have. But we need to be odd for God. If God died for us and God has purpose for us and plan for us, we need to seek them and be about them. Why are we sitting back? Why are we not doing anything for him? Well, we don't have to do anything for him, but why are we not going with him when he asks us to go? And I don't know what that means in your life, but um, for time, I'm not going to turn there, but look at Matthew 14, 21 through 33 later. I'm going to read 28, 29. It says, And Peter answered and said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And so Jesus said to him, come. And when Peter had come, out, come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. You know, this is when the disciples were on the boat, and Jesus walked through the storm, and Peter gets out, and then he sinks. But God wanted Peter to get out of the boat, to get away from the others, to come closer, to come further. And he wanted to show them, as God always does, that God is able to do impossible things. Throw your nets on the other side. We've been fishing all night. Just do it. They had more fish than they could imagine. That he knew about things, and he had ways that they knew nothing about. And I believe looking at that, reading that, and considering that, and God really kind of giving that to me the other night about something, that deep down Peter wanted to come out after Jesus. 
I think he was afraid. It was obvious. His fears popped up right away. That he had doubts. And Peter knew he wasn't able to do the things Jesus did. He knew he wasn't able to walk on the water the way Jesus could. But he still said, Jesus, if that's you, tell me to come out there. And Jesus said, yeah, of course, Peter, come on out here. But Peter was right. He couldn't do the things Jesus did. Until Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit came. Thousands got saved. He was finally a fisherman of men. People got saved because he was doing it under the power of the Holy Spirit and not in Peter's imagination of what's right and wrong and what physics are. You know, I don't know what boat you're in, but God wants you to get out of it. God wants me to get out of it. Maybe it's a boat of trouble. Maybe the boat is a sinking ship. I remember working in an elevator a couple of years ago and the economy downturned and we took a big hit and we drew like a boat on the whiteboard and it was all like, all right, this person just jumped ship. This, are, you know, are we the band playing at the end? And it came back around, and the company got better, but that was sort of the joke. You know, are we jumping ship? Are we going to get out of here? And we were trying to figure out a way to, like, do something on our own, you know. And God said, no, you don't need any part of that. Just to me. But getting out of the boat is scary. It's unknown. Everyone else is in the boat. No one else is getting out. Everyone else is like, it's stormy out there. I'm not getting out of the boat. They're not saying anything. They're just, we're on the boat. We're scared. But Peter says, get, God, do you want me out of the boat? doesn't obey the law of physics that we're familiar with, like I said. Like, Jesus walk on water. As much as Kanye, whoever he is, thinks he can walk on water, or Eminem, whoever it is, they can't. God is above all that. He's outside of all that. And he's in control of all that. He calms the wind of the waves, right? And as soon as he said that Jesus got in the boat with them, they were there where they needed to be. That I don't know, space and time, but they were there. And as soon as Jesus is where we need to be, that's where we need to be. That's where we are. As soon as we move to where he is, that's as far as we need to go. I think the funny thing is that when we desire to desire God to do something, he's already desiring it. When we have a deep down desire for something, and like I said, it's been tried, it's been brought before the Lord, it's been prayed about, and his answer is to come, we must go. We must not delay. He's desired it already, and if we're even having an echo of that desire in us, we must Go after it. Love God and do what you want, it's been said. But I add to that because I struggle with, that's not really clear. For me, I say, love God and do what you want because what you want will be loving God. We love God and we do what we want. What we want is loving God. For Jeremiah 4, 1, 4 through 7 says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, I, Lord God, I can't speak. I'm a kid. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth, for you shall go to all whom I send you. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Jeremiah wanted to speak for God, but he knew he had no place in and of himself. I'm just a kid, God. What, what authority do I have to speak for you? And God says, I've told you to speak. That's your authority. But when God called him, he would speak, even though no one would listen. We're not going to look here uh, in Matthew uh, 6, 24-34. You know, uh, oh, does this print out twice? Yeah, sweet. I'm going to turn it real quick. I know we're about a time, but. It says, No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are, they not more valued? Are you not more valued than they? Which of you by worrying can uh, add one cubit to his height? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Abram, what am I going to eat when I move? What shall we drink? Where am I going to drink? It's desert. What shall we wear? There's no mall out there, God. Where are we even going? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You know, if we're here next week, we don't go to heaven first or something else happens, we're going to see how great the promise to Abram is and how delaying his obedience to that call for whatever reason only causes him to miss out and wait longer. But don't wait. Don't wait because you're worried. Don't be worried. If God's calling you to something, if God's placed a desire on your heart, don't worry. Don't wait. Seek him. The song says, all I had to do is wait. All I had to do is worship. All I had to do is bow down and stay still. Doesn't stay still until God tells you to go. When he tells you to go, don't wait. So, Father, uh, thank you for the call in Abram's life. Thank you for telling him to go, for calling him out of the midst of his family and his culture. And, God, I thank you for that example to us, that this father of faith, like it was said, had to grow up into it. Help us grow into our faith, God. You've each given us a measure of faith and a measure of faith the size of a mustard seed. can say to a mountain, go into the water. And I've tried that and it hasn't worked, so I guess I need uh, to grow up more. But God, you move mountains in my life all the time, and I pray that the mountains are before us. You move the things that we need to step out of and get away from, help us get away from. But God, as you call us out onto the water, help us go out, help us step out, God. Because you've got greater plans for us than we do, and they're worth way more. Uh, they cost you your life. And in the end, it's, it's that we might be with you for eternity, not that we might have a resume, a spiritual resume, our name written down in some earthly book, but our names are in the book of life. So help us live like that. And live like our Father is rich and has everything, and we have no need. We love you, God. In Jesus' name. Amen.